I don't know why, but it feels like a surprise that markets should be trading near all-time highs. Inflation is threatening to topple these gains, and holiday gifts, they're stuck in the supply chain. But spending is strong, although sentiment is weak. You got to admit, this is kind of unique. Rates are going to start rising and the Fed's pulling back, yet speculation keeps climbing. Traders are on the attack. This is supposed to be the strongest time of the year for indexes to keep rising, no matter our fears. But history means little in these times of excess, so keep looking ahead on the Investopedia Express. All aboard for this shortened trading week and a key week for U.S. retail sales. U.S. equity markets are coming off another choppy week as new outbreaks of COVID-19 raise concerns about the coming winter. Pandemic restrictions announced in Austria and Germany, as well as rising hospitalizations in the U.S. Midwest, they're weighing on sentiment. Oil prices plunged nearly 4% last week to their lowest levels in six weeks, dragging down energy stocks. Shares of airlines and cruise lines are also hitting major turbulence after stunning recoveries over the past few months. Austria became the first country in Western Europe to reimpose a full lockdown, which starts today and will last for at least 10 days. Austria has one of the lowest vaccination rates in Western Europe, about 64%, which is still higher than the U.S., and its infection rates are among the highest on the continent. Germany isn't ruling out another lockdown either. Financial stocks also felt the tremors as investors rushed back into the safety of bonds, sending interest rates lower. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note is starting the week at 1.57%. Still, the broader surge across the stock market is noteworthy. The S&P 500 has risen 25% in 2021, and last week it notched its 66th record close of the year. That's more new highs than in any year since 1995. And there are plenty of stocks hitting all-time highs across the stock market. Netflix, Home Depot, AutoZone, Valvoline, Microsoft, On Semiconductor, JB Hunt, Costco, Apple, Alphabet, Etsy, Ferrari, NVIDIA, and about 135 other stocks across the U.S. stock market, all trading at record highs. Take it easy, Leo, but we get it. Still, there are some disturbing signs in the force worth paying attention to. While the mega cap tech stocks like Apple, Netflix, and Microsoft are leading the gains, and big tech makes up about 24% of the entire market cap of the S&P 500, it's not all roses and whipped cream in tech land. Yes, the Nasdaq closed out the week at another record high. 409 stocks in the Nasdaq composite made new 52-week lows. That's the highest number since March of 2020, and those were dark days. Investors have been recycling their portfolios, turning back to large-cap secular growth stocks, but dumping some of the biggest winners of the past 12 months. Nikola is down 85% from its all-time high. Clover Health is down 74%. Zillow, 72%. Lemonade, 71%. Penn Gaming, 61%. Zoom, 56%. Robinhood, 59%. DraftKings, 50%. PayPal and Twitter, down 37% from their all-time highs. Easy come, easy go. You're on a roll, kid. Enjoy it while it lasts, because it never does. That's the great Lou Mannheim from Oliver Stone's Wall Street. Meanwhile, leveraged equity bets continue to rise across the capital markets when we look at leveraged ETF assets, speculative futures positioning, and margin trading debt. Stock market margin debt spiked by $33 billion in October from September to another all-time high of $936 billion. That's a $277 billion rise, or 42% higher from a year ago, if you do the math, and it's 67% higher than it was in October 2019. 
Now, I ain't trying to be no chicken little this close to Thanksgiving, and rising margin debt doesn't predict when the market will crater, but it does tell us that when the stock market takes a tumble, it will trigger massive bouts of forced selling as margin calls go out and leveraged investors have to sell stocks to pay down their margin debt. That pushes prices down further, which then triggers more forced selling and more fears of forced selling and massive portfolio liquidation. There's a reason FINRA tracks margin debt and the Fed pays so much attention to it. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it will be a shortened trading week with the Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S. on Thursday and equity and bond markets closing early on Friday. Black Friday holiday sales will be in focus as usual as they typically account for just under one-fifth of total annual U.S. retail sales. With consumer sentiment wavering amid the heaviness of inflation, any slip in those sales could bring storm clouds into the stock market. Holiday sales are expected to rise between 5 and 8% this year in the U.S., totaling some $1.3 trillion. The U.S. Census Bureau will release its report on durable goods orders for the month of October on Wednesday. Despite ongoing supply chain disruptions, durable goods orders, which include home appliances, computers, and cars, among other items, they're expected to have risen in October after falling slightly in September. On Wednesday, we'll get an update on personal spending and income in the U.S. for the month of October, as well as the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. It's a key measure of inflation, and it's expected to rise 0.6% after falling 0.3% in September. It's already 4.4% higher than last year. All of that economic news is going to be drowned out, though, when President Joe Biden makes his pick for the Fed chair. He may decide to leave current chair Jerome Powell in place or rock the boat and nominate Fed Governor Lael Brainerd to the post. Powell is a Republican, and he was President Trump's pick to lead the Fed. Brainerd is considered slightly more dovish among Fed officials and is said to favor waiting longer to wind down the Fed's bond-buying stimulus program. She's also focused on climate change and income inequality initiatives, two important themes in the Biden White House. Earnings season is winding down, but we'll pay close attention to results from Zoom video communications and Best Buy, among other companies. As I said earlier, shares of Zoom are down 56% from their all-time highs, and no one expects its growth rate to return to what it was in the depths of the pandemic. But the company needs to show investors that it has a plan to keep acquiring new customers and get existing customers to pay more. Best Buy will also report results this week, and it could be the canary in the coal mine for the holiday shopping season. Is the global chip shortage going to impact electronics and tech sales? Apple could be on pace to sell around 40 million iPhones between Black Friday and Christmas. That would be a record, and with the stock at another all-time high, there is not a lot of room for error. Inflation is the latest wall of worry that investors have been climbing, and we may be stuck around these heights for a while. Consumer inflation expectations for the next 12 months are 4.9%, and the Federal Reserve has stopped using the word transitory when referring to these high prices. Too much inflation is usually kryptonite for the stock market, but market dynamics of the past 18 months have turned a lot of historical investing rules on their head. No one studies market trends and history more closely than Sam Stovall. He's the chief market strategist for CFRA Research, a true market historian, and he's our very special guest this week on the Express. Welcome, Sam. Happy to be here, Caleb. Thanks for inviting me. I have been reading your research for years, and I love it because you have this great mixture of historical precedent, fundamental analysis, and technical analysis. And I just love the gumbo there because it's such an interesting way of looking at the market from a bunch of different angles. And Sam, inflation's a lot like Goldilocks and the three bears. We want a little bit, right? So companies have pricing power, it can grow their margins, but if it's too hot, it can overheat the economy and cause a meltdown. What's the temperature today from where you sit? 
Well, it seems as if it's being turned up little by little because expectations were that inflation would be peaking in the fourth quarter of 2021 and then beginning to work its way lower as we proceed into 2022. Yet now it seems as if, like the uh, debt ceiling, it gets pushed out further and further. And so now we're looking for a peak of 6.6% on year-over-year headline CPI in the first quarter. And then maybe by the fourth quarter of 2022, we'll end up with a 3% year-on-year reading. So the peak now is instead of November, December, it's going to be in January or February of next year. But still a year from now, expectations are things will simmer down quite a bit. This is the other side of the V-shaped recovery. We weren't buying anything last year. We were saving our money. We couldn't access a lot of the services part of the economy. We have all this demand. Consumers have some money. The personal savings rate is very high. So this is what you get, plus the supply chain. But what else is contributing to this from your perspective? Well, I think it's the pent-up demand that we're also seeing, where consumers are basically saying, we want to get out there. We want to enjoy meals. We want to purchase things for ourselves, for our kids, etc. A lot of wages are built into the higher prices because it's harder to find people to come back to work, especially in the lower paying leisure, hospitality kind of businesses, restaurants, etc. So it's really just sort of a big mixture, a gumbo, if you will, of headwind. Absolutely. So the Fed has been very frustrated with persistently low inflation up until about seven or eight months ago. But again, this is what happens when you get on the other side of this demand and we have this persistent spike in prices. You talked about it receding potentially after the first quarter of 2022. But what if it sticks around a little bit longer? Investors have been pretty impervious. We know the market's been a little bit shaky, but in general, investors have kind of looked beyond this. Yes, they have. And retail sales have been a perfect example of that. The last two retail sales numbers, most recent one being up 1.7%. The other one was stronger than, than expected as well. We also got better than expected earnings reports from Lowe's, Home Depot, Walmart. So it's as if uh, consumers are saying, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Let's just go out and, and buy what we need to. I've looked going back to 1950, and on a year-over-year basis, this is currently the sixth highest year-on-year reading for headline CPI. So if you take a look at those other periods, you sort of wonder, okay, well, when we did have you know, let's say a trough in January of 1950 up to a peak in April of 1951. Did we experience pullbacks or declines of 5 to 10%? What about corrections? 10 to 20%. How about any bear markets, et cetera? And then during that full period in which we did see the year-on-year percent change in headline CPI at least touch one standard deviation above the mean, how did the market perform? And sure, like any year, we're going to have the threat of a pullback. We're going to have the possibility of a correction. But in three of these five previous situations, we had bear markets. Yet during the full period, three of the five were still in positive territory. Of course, in the uh, 1972 to 74 period, the market was down 37%. And also just after the start of the Gulf War, or I should say the, uh, the taking of Kuwait by Iraq that then led to the Gulf War, uh, we experienced a bear market. And in that period from May of 90 through October of 90, when inflation was on the rise, 
the market was off close to 16%. So I think investors have to be vigilant to the possibility that should inflation continue to move higher, that that could wreak some damage on the stock market. Each of those time periods you described, there was something else going on. The beginning stages of what turned into the Gulf War, the 70s, the oil embargo, the issues with Iran. There was a lot of other externalities happening. We've got a pretty big externality that's happened in this economy over the past 18 months. So is it different this time or do we face some of the same pressures, even though inflation and interest rates are not what they were in those other time periods? They're all sort of different, but they're all sort of the same. I mean, when you think about 1950, 1951, you're still looking at inflation post-World War II. You're also moving into the Korean conflict that started in June of 1950. So a lot of concerns there, more spending on guns and butters and so forth. Well, investors, as we've been saying, have been sort of shaking it off, to borrow a Taylor Swift phrase, as the market sort of dances around these record highs. Most sectors, Sam, even the ones that are most vulnerable to inflation, they seem to be holding up a little bit better than you might think, given the rise in prices and the concerns about the persistent rise in prices. Does that surprise you? Well, not necessarily, because first off, the assumption is that as inflation starts to pick up, the market tends to sort of dismiss it and say, well, it's transitory or you have to take the bad with the good because chances are things are actually going to work out pretty well because if the economy is expanding, if it's pushing up inflation, then it also means it's going to translate to higher and higher earnings. So when you look to what has happened in the past, you basically say, okay, well, the market in general does tend to work its way higher until you get to about a uh, 5.5% year-on-year increase in inflation. I looked at every decade going back to the 1950s and looked at where did we start the decade, where did we end the decade. And if the trajectory was downward, like it was 1951 to 1960, we started the decade at an 8% year-on-year reading in inflation and ended at 1.4. Well, the market loved that. The compound annual growth rate was 13.5%. Yet in the 1970s, we started at 5.3% and ended at 12.4%. So not surprisingly, we had a compound annual growth rate of only 1.6%. So inflation, it's one of those things where it depends on how long, depends on the direction, et cetera, before investors sort of give up the ghost and say, you know what, inflation is a problem that I will have to deal with. Duration and depth, so, so key when you're looking at it. And you're right, the longer it goes, the more it could potentially hurt. But Sam, you're a market observer. You've been watching All these new market participants come into the stock market over the past year, 18 months, for one reason or another. Some of them are traders and just trading meme stocks, but other people are actually in it and in it in a more meaningful way. We have a record number of 401k millionaires. We have this sort of passive involvement in the stock market that's just driven the the weight of the stock market heavier and heavier every year. Is it possible that there are so many people invested in it and so passively invested in it that they're not even thinking about triggers to sell? I think a lot of investors, well, when you look at the old indicators that investors used to look at, such as margin debt, such as the market cap to GDP, or even valuations, they say, well, wait a minute, we've been trading at elevated valuations for more than a year. So how long do I wait until it actually kicks in? I mean, right now we're at 
32% premium P.E. ratio to the average over the last 20 years. There was an old adage of the rule of 20. If you add headline CPI to the P.E. ratio on the S&P 500, going back to 1948, the average was 20.2, the median was 19.8. You can't get much closer to being smack dab on 20 times. So the rule of 20 says a fairly valued market is when you add PE plus inflation. Well, if that were to be holding true today, the market should be 34% lower than it is today. So I guess that's why John Maynard Keynes said that the market can remain irrational longer than short sellers can remain solvent. So in the end, valuations would be proven to have been excessive, but who knows when that end is. Absolutely. So what do you think individual investors care about more, Sam? The threat of persistent inflation, rising interest rates, budget deficits, or is it really just a matter of price and where they can find yield? I think it's the latter. It's so funny, but you know, retirees always complain that, oh, I don't really have any income to live off of. Well, income is a reflection of inflation. You could say, well, gee, you know, I'd love to have a 5% coupon from a 10-year bond, but if that's the case, inflation's probably at uh, 6 or 7 or 8%. So you're still going to be underwater. It just depends by how much. So I think that people, I've always been told my father when he managed money would say, they don't really compare too much against the market. They just don't want you to lose them any money. So price is important. And also, if you are on a fixed income, you want to make sure you get a good dividend yield. So what you have to do is sort of corral yourself to make sure that you don't go too far out on the yield curve, being willing to take on excessive risk in order to get that higher yield. But I think investors are basically saying, you know what, if I'm an income-oriented investor, I want to make sure I get some good income. They've gotten it. Even the index investors have had a nice little ride, even though it's been bumpy at times uh, since the market lows of March, April 2020. And Sam, as you know, there's a lot of speculation in the stock market today. When you look at the options activity, when you look at the meme stocks, the excitement over new IPOs, especially the EV makers, does it smell like irrational exuberance to you? Or is this just a function of a lot of liquidity in the system, in the markets, low interest rates, and this insatiable investor appetite? Well, it certainly feels like over exuberance. You know, I think when you have amateurism stepping into the investment marketplace, you do have to sort of wonder. It's sort of like Joe Kennedy or Bernard Baruch being told what stocks to buy by their shoeshine person. I've been getting calls by nieces, nephews, friends who have never invested before asking me whether they should be buying GameStop, AMC, whether they should be buying Bed Bath and Beyond and so forth. What about crypto? You know, they always say, well, you know, what do you think about Bitcoin? And I say, I haven't bid a coin since they took silver out of it. So, you know, the, the question is, how would you value Bitcoin today? You know, you can't really do it on a cash flow basis or, or, or whatever. So it's really just more of a FOMO, fear of missing out kind of an investment at this point. I was listening on the radio and one of the announcers said, oh yeah, my 12-year-old today told me that we should be buying cryptocurrencies because they're the hot thing. Well, gee, if a 12-year-old is telling you what to do, maybe it's come down to the lowest common denominator. And as a result, uh, that implies that almost everybody is already invested and therefore there's no money left to push share prices higher. 
But with the liquidity that we do see on the sidelines, with interest rates being as low as they are, lack of attractive alternatives, et cetera, possibly there's still more money to help push share prices higher. Right. And there's FOMO and then there's the greater fool theory. How much is the next person willing to pay for the asset I just bought? And you can look at that with stocks, but you can really look at it across cryptocurrencies and and NFTs, things that are very hard to value through traditional valuation metrics, the stuff that you and I grew up on. It's just hard to put a price on them, but whatever somebody's willing to pay for it next is kind of what the price is, right? Oh, absolutely. And on the flip side, I've been trying to sell some high quality Victorian antique furniture and nobody wants it. It's brown furniture. It's not what they want today. They want mid-century modern. So what I regard as very high quality craftsmanship, very few people are really even willing to accept for free. It's like, well, I'll take it, but will you deliver? So yeah, it's all in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, maybe you should just make a non-fungible token image of your Victorian furniture. Maybe that would, would bring in a higher price. Sam, as we head into the sort of the, the home stretch of 2021 and going into 2022, how are you counseling investors, especially individual investors who, as, as we've said, have had a pretty good ride if they're just index investors or if they're even just picking their own ETFs? How are you counseling them? Well, I continue to to tell them to remind themselves of what is their goal, their time horizon, their risk tolerance, you know, being a certified financial planner, you know, I, I try to be as pragmatic as possible. At the same time, I do look to history to say what will likely happen between now and the end of the year as we head into a president's second year in office, which I call this sophomore slump. But, you know, good news first, the from the market low in October to the end of the year. For every year since World War II, the market gained an average of 7.2% and was up in that period 92% of the time. So, you know, you've had some pretty good runs along the way. And yes, there is this seasonal sweet spot that we are likely to experience once again. What the Stock Traders Almanac calls the strongest six months of the year is traditionally the November through April period. And in the second year of a president's term in office, it usually is up about 11.5%. But I do tell investors, watch out for the second and third quarters of midterm election years because the uncertainty leading up to that election, usually first-term Democratic presidents lose 26 seats in the House and four seats in the Senate. If that were to occur this time, they would lose control of both houses of Congress. Wall Street might like that because it would end up with gridlock. And traditionally, the fourth quarter of the second year, as well as the next two quarters, are the best out of the 16-quarter presidential cycle because the uncertainty has been lifted. So as JP Morgan once said, you know, when asked what will stocks do, he said they will fluctuate. And they certainly will, but usually they will do so in an orderly seasonal fashion. Right. And we know the political winds are as uncertain as ever right now. So if you're looking for other walls of worry, there's one there. There's one on inflation. There's one on interest rates. There's so many things to be concerned about. But if you stay, if you've just decided that you can't handle it, you've missed out on some pretty good gains. Sam, you're such a terrific market historian. Uh, you have such good references to things that have happened in the past and a student of the market still, even though you've been doing this for a few minutes. What's your favorite investing term? The one that you live by, the one that you love the most, it just speaks to your soul. We're a site of terms. What's your favorite? Oh, uh, well, my, the, the one term that I always like is that history is a great guide, but it's never gospel. 
you know, indicating that, yes, it's a great starting point and people should not forget it because even though today is different from 20 years ago, which is different from 50 years ago, the one thing that is consistent is human involvement. And until we come to a point when algorithms do all of the investing for us, you are always going to have investors who are greedy on the way up and very fearful on the way down. We're going to have the escalator bring us up in the in the bull market, but the elevator bring us down in the bear market. And so when you do have emotions in investing, then you are going to end up with very large swings and capitulations on both ends of the bull and the bear market. And that's the whole thing about being a long-term investor. You got to be able to deal with the ups and downs. And you are so good about counseling that and so good about educating investors and have been for years. Sam Stovall, the chief market strategist for CFRA. So delighted to have you on The Express. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Caleb. Thanks again. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Les in Kingsport, Tennessee, a lovely town there straddling Hawkins and Sullivan counties. Les suggests moral hazard this week, and we like that term because it has a few applicable meanings. According to Investopedia, a moral hazard occurs when one party in a transaction has the opportunity to assume additional risks that negatively impact the other party. The decision is based not on what is considered right, but what provides the highest level of benefit, hence the reference to morality. This can apply to activities within the financial industry, such as with the contract between a borrower or lender, as well as within the insurance industry. But moral hazard can also be applied to policy decisions like monetary policy decisions. For example, if investors believe the Federal Reserve will always lower interest rates and resort to quantitative easing every time the economy stalls or falters, they'll continue to take risks, sometimes beyond their means. If they feel like they'll be bailed out no matter what, they abandon moral hazard, and that, my friends, can have dangerous consequences. Great suggestion, Les. You'll be getting a pair of the always classy Investopedia socks to wear out to your next trip over to Pals Burgers and Shakes for a combo. We're going to let President Ronald Reagan take us out again this week. Here's the president in his address to the nation on the economy on February 5th, 1981. Inflation was over 10% and the federal deficit had just topped $1 trillion. Reagan was about to slash taxes and prime the U.S. economy out of a vicious tailspin that defined the 1970s. We're victims of language. The very word inflation leads us to think of it as just high prices. Then, of course, we resent the person who puts on the price tags forgetting that he or she is also a victim of inflation. Inflation is not just high prices. It's a reduction in the value of our money. When the money supply is increased, but the goods and services available for buying are not, we have too much money chasing too few goods. That's a pretty good explanation of the inflation phenomenon by the former president. Hey, we know that Thanksgiving is going to be a little more expensive this year than last year, but it's the gathering of family and friends that we should be grateful for, and that's always worth a few dollars more. Bring the gratitude with you to the table if you're celebrating this week, and I sure am grateful for all of you riding along with me on the Investopedia Express. We'll talk again a little further on down the line. <music>